The following audio is from Restoration Southside Church in Chattanooga, Tennessee, where our mission is to restore people and places through outreach, authenticity, and sacrifice. For more information, visit restorationsouthside.org. And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. And you know the commandments. Do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud, honor your father and mother. And he said to him, teacher, I have kept all these from my youth. And Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, you lack one thing. Go and sell all that you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. Disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. And Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, How difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were amazed at his words. But Jesus said to them again, Children, how difficult is it to enter the kingdom of God? It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And they were exceedingly astonished and said to him, then who can be saved? Then who can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, with man, it is impossible, but not with God, for all things are possible with God. Peter began to say to him, see, we have left everything and followed you. Jesus said, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel, who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time, houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the age to come eternal life. But many who are first will be last and the last first. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. If you are in kindergarten through fifth grade and you would like to go to children's church, please join our volunteers back here by the Kids Zone sign. If it is your child's first time in children's church, please go with them so that we can get them checked in. Well, good morning. I'm glad that you're here. My name is Jared. I'm also on staff here at Restoration Southside. And um, if you're looking for a church home, this is a great place to join. We've only been at this three years. And uh, we just completed the purchase of this facility a couple of months ago. And so it's just an exciting time uh, for our young church. Lots of new friendships. And so uh, please do consider us as you toward churches. Uh, A couple of comments before we dive in, the first of which is an apology. Last week, if you weren't here, this won't mean anything to you, but last week uh, we preached through a section on divorce and sexuality and marriage, and one of my closing applications was if you want to fight the uh, decaying sense of marriage and sexuality out there in the world, then you should be happily married. Um, And while that's true, uh, and I still affirm that, 
a uh, godly woman came to me this week and in a very gentle and humble way said, you know what, that is true, but kind of as a closing summation remark, it could make single people feel left out and marginalized more so than they already do at church. And so I just wanted to say, I'm sorry if that made you feel that way and that was not my intent. And I am so glad that you make this place your church home. The second thing that I want to say as we look at this text is that last week we didn't have a ton of time in dealing with all of those things to talk about the section in the text where Jesus is engaging with the children. Basically, the disciples are trying to stop kiddos from coming up to Jesus, and Jesus rebukes them and gets indignant with them and says, let the little children come to me and do not hinder them, for the kingdom of heaven belongs to such as these. And instead, in fact, he says, if you want to enter the kingdom of heaven, you need to become like a little child. That is important context for what's about to happen here. He has just had disciples hold back helpless, dependent, and needy people. And they don't get in this guy's way at all. It teaches us something about the disciples and it teaches us something about our own hearts. So let's pray now and ask God to bless our study of his word this morning. Would you pray with me? Lord, would you have mercy on me, a sinner? I thank you for your word and your Holy Spirit. And I ask that you would be powerfully at work through both this morning. We are more like this rich young ruler, more like the disciples than we would like to admit. We either think ourselves too special or we think ourselves not special enough. But either way, we're resting on our merit instead of yours. God, would you be at work this morning? It's really hard outside these walls. And your people are weary and discouraged and shamed and suffering. And they're so fatigued. But you say that you feed your people by your Holy Spirit through the preached word and through the sacrament so that you can sustain us. And so I'm asking that you do that. Feed your people. They don't want to go back out there empty. And we actually believe that the living God works through the preached word and the sacraments. And so we ask that you'd work, trusting that you do so. You love to give good gifts to your children. Would you give us good gifts now? It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Amen. My favorite book to read to my four-year-old twins is called Stuck. Stuck is a sweet and surprising children's book. And it's one of those children's books that when you're really tired and yet you're still trying to be faithful and put kids to bed, that it goes really fast. But it's also memorable. Floyd is this cute little kid in the story, and Floyd gets his kite stuck in a tree. His most prized possession, his kite, gets stuck in a tree, and he's determined to get it out. But how? So at first, he does what any little kid would do. When he sees his kite in the tree, he takes off his shoe, and he throws it at the kite. And his shoe gets caught in the tree. And so then he takes off his other shoe, and he throws it at the kite, and his other shoe gets stuck in the tree. 
Now what? Surely there must be something he can use to get his kite unstuck. So then he throws an orangutan into the tree and it gets stuck. A boat, a sink, a car into the tree, stuck, stuck, stuck. So he throws the milkman into the tree and a rhino into the tree and then he throws his own house into the tree, stuck, stuck, stuck. Still no kite. So finally he throws his front door into the tree, a fire truck into the tree, and a whale all into the tree, stuck, stuck, stuck. Discouraged, Floyd finally goes and gets a saw, and he throws the saw into the tree. And finally, the kite is knocked loose and falls down. Guys, he could have used the saw to cut down the tree. You missed it. But the point is, is that he is determined to get that kite back. Nothing is going to stop him from getting his prized possession. And it informs us as we look at this text together. Because each one of us has things in our own life that we will sacrifice everything else around us to get that one thing, to get that one thing. For you, it's probably not a kite. It might be your physical appearance. It might be fame. It might be power. It might be influence. For me, it's reputation. It might be money. It might be sexuality. But the thing that you organize all of the rest of your life around so that you can hold on to that one thing, that one kite and you've got to get it well for the rich young ruler he asks all the right questions except he's not willing to organize his life around Jesus he despite his sincerity and his humility and his eagerness he's not willing to organize his life around anything else anything else but his wealth that's important for you As we go through this, two quick comments. One, it's important for you to keep your idol in the back of your head. Yours might not be money like the rich young rulers here, but yours might be something else. And this will just be lost on you. It won't mean anything to you unless you courageously bring forth in your own heart what your idol is, the thing that you organize everything else around. And then two, even though it may not be money, all of us in this country, in this point in time, are wealthy. In the top 1% of the world's wealthiest. And so it does have to address all of our idols and money in particular. Well, let's look together an important question from a qualified candidate. An important question from a qualified candidate. Verses 17 through 22. As he was setting out on his journey, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not defraud. Honor your father and mother. And he said to him, Teacher, all these I have kept... From youth, and Jesus looking at him, loved him and said to him, you lack one thing, go and sell all that you give, all that you have to the poor, 
and you will have treasure in heaven, and then come and follow me. Disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. It's important here for us to slow down just a second and look at the context. We read these words with our modern eyes, and it's immediately easy to dislike the rich young ruler. It's immediately easy to dislike the rich young ruler. He's rich, he's young, he's powerful, and he says, I've kept all of these commandments since I was a boy. We're like, "Uh uh-huh, yeah, isn't he great? I want you to see that because that's the instinct is not the instinct we're supposed to have. We're supposed to follow the authorial intent. That means what the author was trying to communicate. And you can tell when you glance down at the disciples' reaction to Jesus telling this man to sell everything and come and follow him, and the disciples are surprised that this man isn't ready yet for the kingdom. I tell you that because it's important for you to see that this guy is a very likely candidate to follow Jesus. And if we miss that, we'll miss the applications that can help us so much. We look at him and he looks like a young, arrogant punk know-it-all. But the disciples look at him like, whoa, keep the kiddos from this guy. Keep the kiddos from Jesus. But this guy, let's let him walk right up to Jesus. We learn from the synoptic gospels, Mark, Matthew, and Luke, we learn from one that he's rich, from one that he's young, and from the other he's a ruler in the church, in the synagogue. And we think sort of with this connotation that rich wouldn't have been a strong connotation for this young man, but in the Old Testament and in the New Testament, there's these early pictures of that people had a health and wealth kind of gospel. And that means that they, they kind of thought, if you were rich, God must really like you, and that's the reason that you're rich. And we see that from Job. When Job loses all of his wealth, his friends think, God must not like you anymore because you, he has taken away your wealth. So essentially, they have these, these increments, the, these little beliefs of health and wealth gospel, which Jesus destroys here in this text. But it's there, meaning... The disciples would have thought, God must really love this guy because he's so wealthy and has so much power. And before we just throw that out, look at this guy. He's, as he's setting out on his journey, a man ran up and he knelt before him and he asked him, good teacher. So this guy runs to Jesus. There's eagerness there. He bows before Jesus. There's humility there. And he calls him good. He wants to us to see that he has fondness and respect for Jesus. And he says, what must I do to inherit eternal life? He wants to talk about things with substance, things that matter. So we're supposed to look at this rich young ruler and be impressed and encouraged initially to think this seems like a good candidate for the disciples to add to their number. They've got all these bumbling guys who always get everything wrong, and then you've got this rich young ruler who knows the word and actually lives it out. This was going to be a good get for the fellas. But here's where he exposes the flaw in what he's thinking. Listen to it. Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What must I do to inherit 
eternal life. As if God's kingdom can be earned or merited. He's saying, yes, I'm rich, I'm young, I'm a ruler, I've kept all the commandments, but something is still lacking in me. He, he knows something's wrong with him. That's why he comes to Jesus. I mean, he, ha- he does have this confident resume. Yes, I've kept all these things, but he's still coming to Jesus. Something's still gnawing at him in his heart that something, despite all of his good actions, despite his right credentials, something isn't there. And for some of you in this room, there's this gnawing, there's this itch that despite trying to live a good life, trying to be a productive person, trying to hold it all together, there's still something wrong. Listen to that gnawing feeling. Maybe God is talking to you in it. But before we throw this rich young ruler under the bus too much, we're kind of like this too. If I'm a good person. God will let me pass. Of course, I'm not perfect, but I try to be a good spouse. I try to be a good parent. I try to be a good worker. I try to pray. I try to read. I try to get to church. Surely between God's grace and me trying, me trying to be a good person, that really ought to merit eternal life. It's us thinking that We can somehow do good things and impress God with our work and with our merit. And you may not think that you can keep half of the Ten Commandments, but there are things that you think, God will think I'm a good person if I can just do this, if I can just merit eternal life. Those in the room like that are like the older brother and the prodigal son. The one who says, I'm actually pretty good at doing and saying the right things, and I show up on time, and I do what's expected of me. All these years, I've slaved serving you, Father. But then there are those of us who are more like the the younger brother and the prodigal son who do what they want. And the reason that both are exposed by this sort of thing is the younger brother and the prodigal son, he can't do it. He makes mistakes. He lives a messy life. He can't hold it together. He's got big, glaring sins. And he thinks he won't be welcomed back in the father's house because of his lack of merit. And the older brother thinks he's welcome in the father's house because of the presence of his merit. And they're both working off the faulty mechanism that merit is what gets you in or merit is what keeps you out. Which one are you? Do you tend to be an older brother, self-righteous, think that your merit doesn't make you perfect, but it makes you better than others? Or a younger brother in the prodigal son who stands and stares at your shoes and think there's no hope for me because I don't have any merit. Both of you, whichever you lean towards both of you are working on the faulty mechanism that it's your merit that either saves you or damns you. It's your merit or your lack thereof. And Jesus is trying to illustrate to him, it's not about your merit, rich young ruler. What must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus exposes the fact that it's not about his merit or his lack of merit. It's whether or not he knows who Jesus is. That's why Jesus has this funny response. He says, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. 
No one is good except God alone. Now, Jesus is God, and Jesus is good. And so it's weird that Jesus corrects this guy and sort of says, no one is good except God alone. Why do you call me good? He's trying to begin poking holes in this man's sense of goodness. What does it mean that you're good? The man doesn't understand what makes someone good. What must I do to inherit eternal life? And so Jesus helps him to understand that he's not there yet. He says, you know the commandments. Do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud. Honor your father and mother. And he said to him, teacher, all these I have kept from my youth. (laughs) This is a great moment in scripture. He is talking to the Lord of all creation, the savior of sinners and the king of kings. He is talking to the one who was there when the world was started. He is talking to the one who has perfect moral standards, the God-man. And he's saying to him, have you been able to keep up with Moses' laws? And this young man looks at him and is like, yeah, I actually did it pretty well. (laughs) And Jesus looked at him and loved him. I really want you to see that. It's so important. Do not defraud. Honor your father and mother. Jesus, is he could be recalling in his own head of when he had communicated these things to Moses to put on the tablets. And this young guy's like, yep, all these I've kept since I was a boy. And Jesus, looking at him, loved him. That means later, after these stories were gathered up by Peter and shared with Mark, Peter found it important enough to say, after this young man tells Jesus that he's kept all of these rules. Do you remember what Jesus' face looked like? He looked at him and loved him. The reason that I tell you that is because it's such hope for messes like you and me. People who think we have it all together, people who are overwhelmed about the fact that we can't hold it together, and Jesus, in all of his goodness, looking at a broken, lost person, looks at him, not in rebuke, and not in shaming him, but looks at him and loves him. It's such a sweet response. But Jesus loves him enough to not leave him in this deluded state that he can keep up with the law, that he can inherit the kingdom of heaven by what he does. And so that's when he says, don't bear false witness, don't defraud on your father and mother, teach her all these things I have kept from my youth. And Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, you lack one thing. You lack one thing. Sell all that you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and then come and follow me. Jesus puts his hand right on the man's tumor, the man's sin, the man's problem as one commentator says it. He puts it right on him and says, this is it. You think you can keep up with the Ten Commandments. Well, the Ten Commandments he's referencing there is called the second table of the law. As commentators call it, it's like the, the, com- the commandments that have to deal with how we treat one another. And this guy genuinely believes, he's a young man. He's like, I haven't killed anybody with my bare hands. I haven't stolen another man's wife. I haven't defrauded anybody. I've come to my money honestly. He's not lying to Jesus. He genuinely believes he hasn't broken these commandments. And Jesus says, oh, you think you're good on the second half? Well, how about this one? 
you shall have no other gods before me. Or secondly, you shall not make for yourself a graven image. So he's like, maybe you have kept up with a light version of keeping these six, seven, eight, nine, tenth commandments. But if that's true, then do you have anything that you love more than God? And the man, of course, knows that he's rich. He's wealthy. Kent Hughes says it this way, Jesus always demands that those who come to him put away their gods, whether they be possessions or position or power or a person or passion. Jesus says, you've got to love me first. I've got to be your first allegiance. And the young man can't take it. His first allegiance is to his money. What is your first allegiance to? It may not be your money. It may be your reputation. It may be your image. It may be your power or your influence or your beauty. It may for people to think that you're the perfect mom or the perfect dad or the hardest worker, that no one will outwork you, no one will put in more hours, put in more sweat. What is your first allegiance to? All of us have one that breaks the first commandment that you shall have no other gods before us. And several of us, like me, have lots of them. Tim Keller says, if you need help figuring out what your idol is for this young man, it's money, it's his wealth. If you need help figuring out what your idol is, and I want to help you, Tim Keller asks a a few diagnostic questions. He says, look at your anger. Look at your anxiety and look at your self-loathing. Look at your anger, look at your anxiety, and look at your self-loathing. These are the kind of questions. Is there a reason that I'm angry? Is somebody blocking me from getting what I want and so it makes me angry? Or is there a reason that I'm anxious? There's something that I might or might not get and I need to have it and so if I don't have it, I'm anxious. What is that thing? Or... Is it something that you feel like a total failure? You had a chance to succeed and you failed because of what? I give you these tools because I want you to not just hear a sermon and and say, oh, that was a good job or that was a pretty good job or whatever. I want you to wrestle through what the Scripture is teaching you. For this young man, he would look at the Lord of life and walk away because he had great wealth. What do you look at in your life that you treasure more than you treasure Jesus? And again, Jesus looked at him and loved him. The commentators are mixed on this. Some of them think that there's No reason to believe there's any hope for the rich young ruler because he stands before Jesus and chooses wealth and walks away sad. But I think Peter and Mark put it in here just so that we would have some measure of confidence that this isn't the end of the story for this young guy. Jesus looks at him in his idolatry and his arrogance and his self-sufficiency and loves him. And that's such a comfort that this man might go away and think through these things and and wrestle with what he's been told. 
I want you to be able to wrestle with the kite in your life. Remember Floyd and the kite, the thing that you organize everything else around or the, the money for this wealthy man, the thing that he organizes his entire life around, even his relationship with Jesus, he organizes it around money. Do you know how to tear down your idols? There's this famous sermon. One of my favorite preachers brought it to my attention this week. Famous sermon called The Expulsive Power of a New Affection. It's an old sermon from Thomas Chalmers. And the language is a little bit archaic, but I want you to hang in there with me. I know it's hard to be read to, and then I'll tell you exactly what it means, okay? How do you take down your idols? He's answering that question. There are two ways in which a practical moralist may attempt to displace from the human heart its love for the world. There's two ways to displace your love for the world or your idols, either by demonstration of the world's vanity so that the heart shall be prevailed upon simply to withdraw its regards from an object that's not worthy of it, or by setting forth another object, even God, as more worthy of its attachment so that the heart shall be prevailed upon not to resign an old affection, which shall have nothing to succeed it, but to an exchange in old affection for a new one. Here's what he's saying. He's saying the way that we tend to think that you can destroy or dismantle your idols is by saying this idol isn't that great. It's not that special. It's not that good. I don't really need it. And I'll just stop liking this thing. And he's saying that's not the way to do it. You actually have to like something more than you like your idol or otherwise the idol will just keep coming back. Let me give you an example. The numbers say that many of us in the room struggle with pornography. And if you look at and you say, I don't want to do this anymore, what tends to happen is, is you go, it would be so good and relaxing and such a distraction and help me sleep and take away my stress. But I guess I shouldn't do it. And he's saying, you have to flip the script. He's saying, you have to tell yourself how sad and how empty this is and how it won't fulfill you and how it's not good for you and it's not good for your relationships and how it'll make you feel far from God even though you're not far from God. And you have to remind yourself who you are. You have to remind yourself that you're a son or a daughter of God and that Jesus loves you. And whether or not you give in to your sin, nothing will ever change that love. And that he's going to provide for you every day. And then he's coming back for you. And he's going to take you to paradise where you get to love and worship and work forever. And he's saying that's what you have to learn how to do. He's saying that you don't just call something bad and walk away from it. He says you poke holes in it and you elevate your new identity and you remember what you have is more important than what you're being tempted with. It's the vision of these trees. Some of you have them in your yards that despite all of the fall and all of the winter whipping wind, you still have dead leaves that are just hanging on, hanging on barely to these trees. And they don't look pretty anymore. They're dead leaves, but they're still hanging on. And do you know what the only things that will knock those dead leaves down? The sprout of new growth. They will finally come down this spring. They will come down because something new has grown in its place. That's what he's talking about here. 
You don't just take away an idol, you replace it with what was supposed to be there, a deep and abiding love for Jesus. And here, quickly, we'll talk about his lesson for the boys. Look in verse 23. He says, And Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, How difficult will it be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God? And the disciples were amazed at his words. But Jesus said to him again, Children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And they were exceedingly astonished and said to him, Then who can be saved? Remember? We think it's easy that the young man is not qualified. The disciples are astonished. First they're amazed, and then they're exceedingly astonished. Who then can be saved? Jesus, if a rich young ruler who knows the law and follows the law can't be saved, what chance do the rest of us have? And you've asked that question too. But each one of us know in our lives somebody who kind of seems to have it all together, seems to do what they're supposed to do and not do what they're not supposed to do. And they seem to do it sort of naturally and sort of get ahead of the rest of us. And then it looks, it's like if that person can't get in, what chance do the rest of us have? And Jesus says it. And this is why we know this text is more than just about money. He says, you're right. If that man has to work off of his merits, it's impossible. And that topples the rest of us too. He said, with man it is impossible, excuse me, with man it is impossible, but not with God, for all things are possible with God. What he's telling the fellas is, is that it's not money and it's not merit and it's not this guy's ability to keep up with the commandments. It's God alone, God alone that can rescue. It's God's merit, not our merit. Yes, you were saved and saved by merit. It's just not your merit my friend says. It's God's merit. And the reason Jesus takes care to poke holes in money is because money is a particular stumbling block. It's not the only stumbling block, but it's a particular stumbling block. If you compare the children that we're trying to get to Jesus, the children are helpless, needy, dependent, perfect for the kingdom. A rich person doesn't feel helpless, doesn't feel needy, and can depend on themselves. And so he's trying to poke holes in this. He's saying, careful about money. Now we know from the Bible that there are rich people in the Bible who use their resources for the kingdom, and it's not a sin to be rich. David was rich, Solomon was rich, Job was rich, Abraham was rich. There's lots of rich people in the Bible, and they use their resources for the kingdom, and it's wonderful. But the trouble with wealth is that it can take away your sense of childlike dependence neediness. Luke 16 says this, no one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. Revelation 3 says it this way, you say I am rich. I have acquired wealth and do not need a thing. Listen to this. You say I'm rich. I've acquired wealth and don't need a thing, but you don't realize that you're wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. What he's saying is our idols, and particularly money, take away the childlike neediness that we need God and God loves to give himself to us. And wealth can distract you from that. 
So what should you do with your resources? When we live in a country in a time where all of us are wealthy at the world standards, nobody has a better rule than C.S. Lewis's gold standard. He says, the way that you know you're giving enough is that you have to taper your lifestyle in comparison to others who make the same amount as you. He says, you're giving enough when you can't do the same things that other people who, make this, who don't care about Jesus, who make the same amount of money, when they can do things that you can't do because of your love for Jesus and your generosity to the kingdom, that's when you know that you're giving enough, that you can't keep up with the lifestyle with people that make the same money than you. Jesus says here, it's impossible to experience God unless God himself moves. It's impossible to experience Jesus unless God himself moves. He means it's not likely or logical or going to happen. You can't have God unless God moves. You can't make yourself alive. You can't make yourself right. You can't make yourself good. You can't make yourself holy. You can't make yourself gentle. You can't make yourself patient. He's saying you have to come to Jesus. If you're here and you've never had your eyes opened by the Holy Spirit, ask him. Say, I can't do this, God. You say it's a supernatural, spiritual work. I can't. I'm here and I'm listening and I'm trying to understand. I can't do it. Open my eyes. He loves to answer that request. And if you're already following Jesus, you ask yourself, Jesus, open my eyes to my idols and help me to start repenting again afresh. Friends, we need a rich young ruler. We just need a better one than this. A better one than this. 2 Corinthians 8, 9 says, for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor. So through his poverty, you might become rich. Let's pray. Holy Spirit, feed your people. You, we know that we need you to sustain us, sustain our marriages, sustain our parenting, sustain our kids at school who are being tempted, sustain our work, sustain our finances. We just are needy. We're dependent and helpless and needy. And instead of being ashamed of that, we delight in that because that's what you love for us to know. But because we are dependent and helpless and needy, we ask that you would move. We expect you to do so. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. And instead of being ashamed of that, we delight in that because that's what you love for us to know. But because we are dependent and helpless and needy, we ask that you would move. We expect you to do so. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.